are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are currently on page 181 of the hardbound blue copy, if you're following along. It's the Holy Transfiguration uh, translation. And so we're on step number 25, 181, paragraph four, about a third of the way down the page. And uh, we've been talking a lot over these past weeks about the parallel between the Evergatinos and the latter, that uh, it's been good timing for us. Uh, they've matched up very well and complemented each other very well in our discussions of humility and pride. And uh, we are currently reading step 25, which is on humility, the destroyer of the passions. And uh, there's something that's interesting that comes forward both, I think, in the Evergatinos and the latter about humility in particular, uh, that there is something in the way that the fathers describe it as heavenly, as holy, as something that draws us into the very life of Christ. Uh, that it is uh, a virtue that is part of the very essence of God himself and uh, revelate part of the revelation of the life of God and his love. And, and so we come to know it. Uh, certainly, I think, in seeking it with a, uh, within our hearts, but also through this, the deeper intimacy that comes in doing so with Christ in particular, uh, becoming one with he who is the, the humble one, uh, who empties himself and uh, does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, uh, but makes himself a slave, a servant to all. And uh, the, the writing at times becomes surprisingly poetic. And, uh, and so, again, we do well to read closely and take our time with it. Again, we're on paragraph number four. The appearance of this holy vine is one thing during the winter of the passions, another in the spring of fruit blossom, yet another in the actual harvest of the virtues. Yet all these different stages concur in gladness and fruit bearing, and therefore, they all have their own signs and sure indications of fruit to come. For as soon as the cluster of holy humility begins to blossom within us, we at once begin through, though with an effort, to hate all human glory and praise and to banish from ourselves irritation and anger. When this queen of virtues makes progress in our soul by spiritual growth, 
We regard all good deeds accomplished by us as nothing, or rather as an abomination, supposing that every day we add more and more to our burden by a dissipation that we do not comprehend. We suspect the very abundance of the divine gifts showered upon us to be beyond our deserts and to aggravate our punishment. So our mind remains unplundered, reposing securely in the casket of modesty, only hearing the knocks and the jeers of the thieves without being subject to any of their threats because modesty is an inviolable state. So a curious way of speaking about a virtue that each stage in the growth of it, John tells us, sees its own fruits. And, uh, and in seeing them, we begin to respond uh, to the virtue in particular ways, especially uh, setting aside all worldly kinds of glory and praise, uh, as well as overestimating uh, our own virtue, acknowledging that all is grace, all comes to us from the hand of God, and all glory belongs to him. And uh, so any uh, expression of virtue on our part almost stings the heart because it allows us to see with a, a greater clarity just how easily we allow ourselves to fall into a kind of dissipation and how unworthy in many ways we are of the, the great mercy and the grace of God. And uh, humility above all the other virtues allows us to see that with uh, a greater clarity. And so we begin to see that the beauty of virtue uh, in and through humility. And, uh, and yet we, at the same time, see our own poverty and how much is due to God's mercy in our life. Uh, the images here are uh, striking, uh, especially towards the bottom of the paragraph. Uh, the divine gives showered upon us to be beyond our deserts and aggravate our punishment. So our minds remain unplundered reposing securely in the casket of modesty. And so there, there's something protective uh, about this virtue itself, that even though it reveals our poverty by showing us just how clearly we are blessed by God and how much he showers his grace upon us, it is as if we are closing ourselves in, dying to the world, as well as dying to sin, because it encloses us, as it were, in a casket of modesty, that the thieves, as much as they try and knock as they will upon that casket, uh, cannot uh, get any response from us, because we've truly died to the world and are now uh, alive in Christ and to Christ. And so it's, again, these are paragraphs I think that one could sit with for quite a long period of time to, to meditate upon. And I, I certainly do, don't do justice to them. Uh, but again, I think it does, even in a cursory reading uh, of the text, uh, what comes forward again is that something unique about the, uh, the nature of humility itself. And this will play itself out as we make our way through the text. Number five, thus we have ventured in a few words to philosophize about the blossoming and growth of this ever-flourishing fruit. But what is the perfect reward of this holy virtue? 
you who are near the Lord must ask the Lord himself. It is impossible to gauge the quantity of this holy wealth and to explain its quality is still more impossible. However, as regards to as regards its distinguishing characteristics, we must try to express the thought that comes to our mind. So already John is hinting at the fact here that uh, this participation uh, in the virtue of humility draws us into the very life of God. And so one is made incapable of expressing the wealth of, uh, of what comes to us through it, of the blessings that come to us through it, both the quality and the quantity of it, that this is something that only Christ can reveal to us because it's in union with him that we come to know it most fully. But uh, he tells us he will strive to at least give us a, a sense of some of the characteristics of, of the virtues so that we might understand it a little more deeply. Following along so far, any thoughts or comments before we move on? Okay. Number six, painstaking repentance, mourning cleansed of all impurity and holy humility and beginners are as different and distinct from each other as yeast and flour from bread. By open repentance, the soul is broken and refined. It is brought to a certain unity. I will even say a commingling with God by means of the water of genuine mourning. Then kindled by the fire of the Lord, blessed humility becomes bread and is made firm without the leaven of pride. Therefore, when this holy threefold cord, or rather heavenly rainbow, unites into one power and activity, it acquires its own effects and properties. And whatever name as whatever you name as an indication of one of them is a token also of another. And so by a brief demonstration, I shall try to prove what I've just said. And so he starts out by saying, you know, there's a real challenge here that uh, what we speak of in ourselves as beginners in the spiritual life, things such as mourning or impurity or the humility that belongs to beginners or novices in the spiritual life uh, is as distinct and different as uh, yeast and flour are from bread itself. And so they give us uh, a mere glimpse of what is to come. They are the first fruits if you will, of, of this virtue in it, uh, but it's only uh, when it's uh, brought to its fullness by the purifying fire of God's grace do we come to see it in its true beauty. And so, you know, John tells us, okay, it's up to me now to demonstrate this, uh, but words are going to fail in some measure, that this is unlike describing or defining uh, any of the other virtues that he's talked about in the past. The first and paramount property of this excellent and admirable trinity is the acceptance of indignity with the greatest pleasure. When the soul receives it with outstretched hands and welcomes it as something that relieves and cauterizes diseases of the soul and great sins. The second property is the loss of all bad temper and humility at its subsiding. 
The third and highest degree is a true distrust of one's good qualities and a constant desire to learn. So very powerful that indignity uh, begins to change in our perception of it, that typically in our pride, we shrink back from it. And in a defensive way, we want to protect ourselves uh, from the insults uh, of others. Whereas uh, John tells us that one begins to be able to receive it uh, through humility with a, a kind of joy and outstretched hands because it, it is curative. He says it cauterizes the diseases of the soul and great sin. So the very thing that we feared or hated in the past, now we begin to see as the uh, and its great medicinal quality that it heals us from uh, what keeps us from knowing the fullness of the love of God, but also keeps us from uh, growing in virtue. That uh, true freedom comes from uh, freeing ourselves from the ego. This is one of those little paragraphs that I write wow next to, uh, simply because of the idea that is associated with it, that uh, we could come to rejoice over something that we would typically shrink back from. Christ is the end of the law and the prophets for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And the end of impure passions is vainglory and pride for everyone who's inattentive. But their destroyer, this spiritual stag, keeps him who lives with it immune from all deadly poison. For where can the poison of hypocrisy appear in humility? Where is the poison of calumny? And where will a snake nestle and hide? Will not rather be drawn out of the earth of the heart and be killed and destroyed. So humility then begins to draw out that which is poisonous to the soul. And the image here is, you know, we are drawn back uh, to the, uh, as a, a deer longs for running streams uh, from the, the Psalm, uh, Psalm 41. Uh, so, you know, often when a, a, a deer would be stung by a serpent that it would long for for water overcome by thirst and uh but those who are constantly drinking if you will at the stream of this virtue uh, uh of nourishing ourselves upon christ then uh are those who have no worry about the the uh, the destroyer, if you will, or, or the snake. It has nowhere to hide. That humility uh, shines light within the heart. And, uh, and so it draws uh, all that is poisonous out from within. And so what do we have to fear about calumny uh, or hypocrisy when this virtue has uh, really begun to shape the heart? So it's, you know, this is a distant reflection from, I think, how we often discuss humility, uh, which I, I think is more often misunderstood as simply as a kind of self-contempt or self-hatred at times, whereas uh, 
in the way that John describes it, it is this turning away from ego and turning toward God. So really it's a turning toward life and light and in and through that comes a healing to the soul. And so it's not self-hatred, uh, but within it is a genuine kind of self-love in the sense that we are giving ourselves over to the, the one alone who can heal us from what would destroy us. In union with humility, it is impossible that there should be any appearance of hatred or any kind of dispute or even a sniff of disobedience, unless perhaps the faith is called into question. So again, it, it begins to drive out those things that uh, almost to become part and parcel of our day-to-day -day life and our interactions with others, the kinds of dispute that we enter into each with each other, uh, the even uh, kinds of hatred for each other, the, and even the sniff, he tells us, of disobedience, uh, that uh, even the slightest odor of this vice is nowhere to be found, that one longs, above all, to fulfill the will of God. And to do that is to love as he has taught us to love and to be obedient as he's taught us to be obedient on the cross. And, uh, and so the, our capacity... Uh, to hate or the desire to enter the dispute or to argue with another uh, begins to disappear. And he offers one caveat here, which is uh, the, the faith itself, when it's called into question, is when one would, you know, speak up in the sense of uh, Paul, you know, would be a good example of this, you know, that one would uh, uh, seek to articulate the truth. Uh, but I think this still certainly precludes hatred of the other. Any comments or thoughts so far? Yes, Anthony Gallagher. Yes, hi, Father. I was uh, thinking about what you were saying about mm -hmm. loving in dignity as part of humility, and that's something I have been reflecting on. And uh, I have been wondering about that aspect because mm -hmm. In I believe humility comes from the word humus, which is earth, which means that we're rooted on the earth, which is the truth of Jesus Christ. And uh, while I believe that we need to learn to accept uh, things as uh, the Lord permits them to come our way, it seems that if we start to love when we are calumnied or lies are spoken against us, you know, it it would it would seem that we're loving a lie in a life against the truth with the person of Jesus Christ. So I don't know how why we would come to love being you know when people lie about us or call me or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, my first thoughts are that he who is truth uh, shows us this path, and he who is humility. Uh, reveals it to us is the path that leads uh, to sanctity, but more than that, to participation within the life of God. That this is a very, uh, the very reflection of the nature of the love of God, 
that takes place in what we are preparing to celebrate now, which is the incarnation, this downward mobility, this self-emptying. Uh, what I mentioned already, that even though uh, he knew equality with God, uh, he did not count it as something to be grasped at, but humbled himself and becomes obedient. And uh, this is manifested certainly in the incarnation where the word of God becomes infants, uh, the wordless one, uh, and enters into our world, but also is then made manifest for us uh, and poured out upon us uh, most fully upon the cross. Uh, where he empties himself completely. Uh, I've come to set fire uh, upon the earth, and oh, how I wish it was already burning, that there's a longing within him to pour himself out uh, in order that we might share and participate in the fullness of his life and love, that he's willing uh, to lower himself uh, even to the very depths of hell, to take upon himself the very burden of our sin, and in order that we might know and come to share in the fullness of life. And, uh, you know, Paul tells us that this is a stumbling block and uh, foolishness and always will seem to be so. I think even for those of, of us of, of faith that we, when presented with the cross, which is never the one that we would choose for ourselves, uh, we are going to shrink back from it and say, no, you know, what? what is the purpose of this? Where is God in this? And there should be a part of us in faith that says God is there in the very humbling itself, that I'm not in isolation, and that this is something that draws me into the deepest intimacy with, with the Lord. Because it's not simply uh, a self-abasement or a self-hatred abstracted from this relationship with God, uh, what has been revealed to us uh, of his love. Uh, and so it's something that is uh, uh, that draws us into uh, the, the greatest and deepest intimacy with the Lord. And... Uh, Again, this isn't something that I think one learns uh, from books. I think even John is already indicating here that, you know, what the beginner experiences uh, to what the uh, most holy one experiences is extremely great. And even that uh, is a mere shadow of what is perfected uh, by the grace of God. And so John, in a sense, is agreeing with you and saying, you know, there, there is something to the human mind that is and always will seem absurd uh, about uh, the virtue of humility as the cross seems to be that for us as well. We've domesticated it, but, uh, you know, even, you know, in our feast of the exaltation of the cross or the Good Friday uh, liturgy, you know, where, you know, we, uh, you know, sing, you know, this is the wood of the cross upon which the Savior of the world hung. And, uh, you know, we will reverence it. And yet, when it comes to reverencing it in our own life, taking hold of it, 
that we are often much less willing to do so. And, um, and, and so I, I think I understand what you're saying, uh, that it can be disconnected from Christ. And then it can become something uh, which leads to grave uh, uh, misunderstanding. Uh, very, uh, probably the best work I've read on this contemporary is by Michael Casey, a Trappist, called uh, Truthful Living, Humility and the Role of St. Benedict. And the whole first part of the book is his describing what humility is not. And I think it's a very important foundation I think to understanding what John is saying here, because I think he points out many of the things uh, that you bring up in your concern that our our vision of this could become distorted. I think the only way to understand it and the only proper way to approach it is in and through Christ. And, you know, a relationship that develops with him over the course of time, strengthened and aided by, by his grace, we come to see the truth of it. And I, I think this is why John, you know, warns us. He says, you know, everything that I've said at this point, I can go no further. I can try to describe for you how to get there, what it looks like. Uh, but, you know, what it looks like is beginning and at its end is as different as flour and, and water are from, from bread itself. And so I can only do the best in trying to articulate it. But in the same, I would have to say the same too, that you know, one understands it only in union with Christ and in the experience of it. Saint Isaac the Syrian, for example, says knowledge of the cross is found in the cross or in the experience of the cross. That, you know, to know it abstractly or notionally is much different than knowing it through experience. What takes place within the human heart, the soul, uh, in the embrace of it. And I think that's true of humility as well. There's a couple comments here. We'll see if. Uh, will probably add to what you've been saying here, Anthony. How does one try to take this step if a spouse or a close friend doesn't welcome the transformation we intend to make? You can't just cut them off. You can be sincere in faith and not burden them with it until they see the positive change. Uh, you know, it's interesting. That is a common question. Uh, and... I have to say not easily. I think uh, there's a humbling that takes place in and through that and also a cross that one bears. I mean, those who are pursuing a life in Christ are, are often going to be uh, seen as very difficult people to live around. And, uh, and there can be almost a sense of competition uh, for devotion and love that Christ himself becomes a competitor in that relationship rather than one that uh, unites and binds two together or a community of individuals together. Uh, it can uh, be, as he, he says, you know, I came not to bring, uh, how did he put that? Uh, came to bring the sword. Somebody help me out with the full uh, quote here. Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I've come not to bring peace, but the sword. That yeah, I, we know what you're talking about, and oh. I can't I place it either. But it's um, you know not to bring unity, but to divide. And the division would be you know the sheep and the goats, and the um, you know the believers and the non-believers, right? Right. I think yeah. I think that's inevitable. You know, as one moves in that direction. But I don't think the division is as clear as we imagine that the two look very often very much alike. And uh, I think, you know, Paul talks about, you know, those who are strong bearing with those who are, are weak, not to please themselves, but to please Christ. That we don't approach this in a condescending fashion. Acknowledging again, as humility teaches, that all comes by the grace of God. And uh, if God has given us the grace and to and has drawn us upon and drawn us along this path and has given us the gift of faith, then we show gratitude and we bear with perhaps the rebukes or the misunderstandings of others with that humility. Uh, taking opportune moments to clarify misunderstandings uh, or simply to love or to be perfected in our patience, not to see others uh, as those that we condescend to, uh, but that we are united to in a radical way, that there's a radical solidarity that exists between us, even with those that we uh, find ourselves in conflict with. Uh, and I think we often lose sight of this, that, you know, when we find opposition, that the call to love is even greater, and the call to conversion is even greater, and that we do so not for ourselves, but for others as well. I think part of our struggle in the West is this individualism. Uh, and where there is, in fact, this radical solidarity that exists between us, both in our poverty and our sin, but also in, in the grace that comes to us through Christ. And so as we struggle, uh, and especially for those who are yoked to each other through marriage, that one is going to have to lift the other up when they might be faltering. And... Uh, when the two are one, the greater pursuit of virtue is going to strengthen even the one who seems to be lacking it at, in faith at any given time. It elevates uh, the whole family, in fact, but certainly the, the, the couple united in, in the sacrament. Uh, this, of course, takes great faith because I think, you know, those that we are closest to often cause us uh, the greatest amount of suffering. And the same way that community life is the greatest gift, but also the greatest mortification. And uh, so marriage can be the greatest gift, but also the one's greatest mortification. You're going to suffer the cross. Uh, perhaps they don't teach that uh, strongly enough in the pre-Cana courses, which they, they probably should. Prepare yourself, brace yourself for what is to come. Uh, it's not all going to be, you know, roses and romance. You know, it's it's going to be very difficult. So I see and understand what you're saying. I think, you know, one, uh, the fidelity to one doesn't preclude fidelity to the other. And in fact, fidelity to Christ is a greater fidelity to one's spouse. 
to strengthen oneself in that relationship is to strengthen and deepen that bond and love for the other, uh, even when perhaps it does bring us great suffering. And that's what we have to have confidence in and uh, not to turn the other into a form of opposition or an enemy to be overcome, but one to be loved. Uh, Carol writes, the discussion reminds me of Isadora from the Evergatinas and the indignity she embraced. Right, you know, from, uh, yes, she'd be a good image of both one in community and spouse. <laughs> She's whacked across the nose and, you know, insulted by her community members. And yet is this, you know, holy fool in the eyes of the community and acts, uh, the authors say, like a sponge for her community, not only in terms of cleaning, doing all the cleaning, but she cleanses in the end all of their hearts when it's revealed to them her sanctity. And this often happens in marriage as well. I don't know if any of you have heard of Elizabeth Lesore. And uh, she was married to, she had great faith, uh, was Catholic, but was married to an atheist. And uh, she kept a journal and uh, she developed sickness at one point, cancer. And, and she went through this offering it all, certainly for her husband. And it was only after her death, uh, she loved him dearly and he loved her. But the one thing they did not share was the faith. But after her death, her sister shared the journal with the husband who saw the depth of her faith, the depth of her love for him. And uh, after, after reading it, he converted to Catholicism and became a Dominican priest. And, uh, and so we might never see the fruit of that love or that faith uh, while in this life. And yet it worked wonders, certainly in her husband's life, but in the millions who have read about her life and read her journal, her cause uh, has been put forward. I think she's been declared a servant of God, if I remember clearly. Uh, but Elizabeth Lesur, if you have a chance to read her diary, it's extraordinary. Uh, but she becomes a good example, I think, in response to Sharon's question, you know, what does one do? And uh, Elizabeth's response was this hidden life of deep faith and love for a husband and uh, deep love for God and offering the cross that she was carrying of her illness for him and for his faith. And this is what we are called to do for others. Daniel Allen writes, it's startling that the beginning is acceptance of indignity. I tend to see that as the end or the perfected state. John says it, it is the first property, and that is something. Yeah, it's, that's sort of a kind of a wake-up call because typically we, we, we do see that, I think, as you say, it's the hardest thing. And uh, because, again, our ego... Uh, is you know wounded by it and we move to that defensive position but this our touchiness is the thing that has to go first you know in the face of the insults of others and indignities that that come to us this is where this is what lays the foundation for humility
Father Marty writes, it seems that within humility, there is recognizing that God loves me in a breathless way. When I'm around someone who genuinely loves me, I tend to love myself more when I'm with them, feeling loved and loving myself without condemnation. It seems helps me accept my weakness and need for God. Humility then becomes a natural honesty that helps me put down my defenses of my ego and let God do whatever is necessary to make me like him and united to him. Then denying myself and carrying the cross, I recognize to be therapeutic and seems to be the most reasonable and honest thing to do. Beautifully put and captures uh, with great clarity, I think, what John says. That, and I think what you said certainly at the beginning, you know, using what is common to us when we are around those who love us, that there is something that is elevating about that. And it also frees us, I think, from the fear of acknowledging our own poverty and our own weakness, because there is no condemnation in the eyes of the one who truly loves us. Uh, and they often see those weaknesses and vulnerabilities with greater clarity than anyone else. And yet there is this deep and profound acceptance. And in experiencing that, then one uh, develops a greater confidence uh, that that is even more true with God. And it's interesting, you know, over the course of years of engaging people where there has been an absence of that, you know, uh, of a parent who, you know, simply left. And, you know, when an individual is a child and they uh, have this void or this sense that, you know, was I responsible for this individual leaving? Uh, or how could someone do that? You know, leave their, their own child. And so, having this sense of being loved uh, and uh, 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 by others and by God, as Father Marty describes here, is often something that is very difficult for many to come to. And I think as Christian men and women, we have to uh, remember that in the way that we engage others, that is often in and through us, that, that uh, experience and the possibility of experiencing God in such a way uh, takes takes root. The first seeds are so, of faith are often sown through the kindness and gentleness and attentiveness of others. So excellent comment. Daniel writes, I haven't read her diary, but the diary of Elizabeth Lesore may be a good concrete example of what it looks like. That's who I was talking about. Didn't I say Elizabeth Lasore? <laughs> Sorry, that was, uh, I made that comment a little while ago. Okay, so all right. <laughs> uh, Suzanne writes, why is it that as long as we are alone with God at home, we maintain peace of soul and continuous prayer. But as soon as we get into conversations with others, our restraint goes out the window. For example, I got sucked into a discussion about politics earlier today, and I was unable to detect and prevent anger from arising inside me. Ultimately, my words took an angry tone, and I said words I now regret. 
it is like all I accomplished this morning with God was stolen from me. Basically, when tested, I fail. I, you know, I think God often reveals that to us because I think you're right. You know, when we are in that stillness and silence and we experience that love and the mercy of God, our hearts are filled with gratitude. But when we become dissipated and distracted and are drawn into these kinds of, of conversations, the heart quickly uh, becomes agitated, loses that hard won stillness, and then uh, finds itself ever so quickly uh, overcome by anger, as you describe. And so the, the fathers often counsel remaining silent. Like not, not that cuts out an abundance of sin by simply not engaging in those discussions. And so, you know, I think that's what we would want to learn from that, you know, to hold on to that stillness uh, and to avoid those circumstances. In the end, what do we lose? I think that, you know, humility sort of shows us that, you know, to lose an argument you know, just say, okay, you know, brother, that's fine. You know, it, you know, it costs us nothing in comparison to what we receive from God. Uh, and also in comparison to what we lose if we give ourselves over to pride or anger. You know, to have our, you know, our uh, judgment called into question. Anthony writes, Suzanne, my studies in higher education were politics, law, and philosophy. I intentionally get into discussions to bring Christian principles into our worldviews. Oh, so you're responsible. And since ever, Katinas and Climacus have been gradually able to detect a non-Christian attitude in me and cut it off more quickly. And I'm able to see Christian principles and attitudes that are really neglected, like humility in politics. Yes, you know, it's it is jarring and it is sobering i think would be the better word when we read uh the writings uh, of the fathers and uh, because they do reveal what is so often within our hearts that philosophy politics law as you you say you know that it encourages this kind of discussion or argument debate uh and yet absent virtue it quickly descends into something ugly or manipulative something very dark and uh and and so you know without the formation of heart without purity of heart john will tell us in the coming pages you know everything becomes rotten without humility everything becomes rotten and so even those things that are best in the world or could accomplish great good uh, quickly uh, disintegrate when this virtue is lacking within us. I wouldn't think all is lost, Suzanne writes. It's part of redeeming the time. Uh, right. You know, fall, get back up, never stop. Sometimes, you know, again, you know, as Newman said, we make our way to heaven backwards. You know, two steps forward, one step back. And we you know, see our missteps. And in the end, you know, we realize that God is giving us light even in that. Okay. Next uh, paragraph. 
number eight. Christ is the end of the law and the prophets for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And the end of the impure passions is vainglory and pride for everyone who's inattentive. But their destroyer, I'm sorry, I already read this paragraph. Um, are we on number nine? Number 10. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. He who has been united with humility as his bride is above all gentle, kind, easily moved to compunction, sympathetic, calm, bright, compliant, inoffensive, vigilant, not indolent, and why say more, free from passion. For the Lord remembered us in our humility and redeemed us from our enemies and our passions and impurities. So when humility becomes our bride, one to whom we become united uh, to, uh, then all of these qualities begin to emerge. And uh, again, so often things I think that we associate with, with weakness in our day and age, especially when uh, we have this sense of needing to protect ourselves. And I think this is growing in our world and culture more and more. I mean, we see this kind of aggression and uh, playing itself out in, in so many arenas. And the world seems to be such a threatening place that I think the temptation would be to turn in on, our, on ourselves in a protective way, uh, rather than uh, the virtues that are described here that also carry with, with them a kind of vulnerability, a, a gentle person, you know, one who's willing to approach another who seems ag agitated or ang angry, you know, is, is not baited by that, but sees a, a kind of, uh, of woundedness in it and tries to be a healing balm. Same with kindness, uh, one who's easily moved to compunction. So that one who's able to see uh, uh, and feel uh, the sting of their own sin, uh, no matter how small it might seem to be uh, to those ar around them. Uh, that they feel it very deeply or ways that they've failed to love. I've mentioned to you before uh, the one office within the oratory of the corrector and how terrible that was for individuals, uh, even if they were, did it ever so gently, that uh, one of them, I think it was Juvenile Ancina, would often show up at the person's door, knock on the door, and his cassock would be covered with dust because he had, had prostrated himself on the floor, thinking him, he had uh, perhaps wounded the heart of the person that he had to correct. And, uh, and so, Similarly here, you know, that one would seek to be inoffensive in word and demeanor in every way, not to, to harm the sensibilities of others. That's a, a rare individual that would be so conscious of not wanting to put another person ill at ease that you wouldn't want to say or do anything, or even in one's personal mannerisms, put a person, make a person ill at ease. 
but want to, to make them as comfortable as possible. It's also a, a good definition of a gentleman or a gentlewoman. Uh, vigilant, not indolent. Uh, and why say more, he says, you know, basically to have humility is to be free from the passions uh, that uh, make us aggress towards others or to be focused upon the self. Okay, there was a comment here. Uh, Sharon Fisher writes, um, let's see. Follow up to discussion. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but I have the sword for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and her daughter-in-law against his mother, her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Yes, you know, I think this is, you know, if the cross is the stumbling block and this love uh, uh, is a stumbling block, then the, the reality of living in a fallen world is going to bring upon us the contempt of others. You know, you'll be hated by all because of my name and uh, to not resist one who's evil uh, is a, a difficult thing. And uh, yet this is what we are, are called to. A humble monk will not meddle with mysteries, but a proud one will pry into judgments. So a curious little saying, but uh, I think what John is saying here is that, you know, as we see in the footnote, uh, will not pry into the, the ways of God, will not set oneself up as a judge of God uh, or what has been revealed to us uh, or seek things that are beyond, uh, you know, maybe the measures of one's own mind, uh, which would be the mind of God. Uh, that this is something that we are drawn into, again, through the virtue uh, of humility. Uh, but often, I think we fall into this uh, very quickly, which is uh, to, to put God to the test, if you were, uh, if you will. Daniel. Sorry, I didn't have this typed and ready, but um, I have two questions now. Um, so the, I guess on what was just read, how does that compare? And maybe I just misunderstand it, but when he says a proud one will pry into say the ways of God or, or into judgments, how does that, um, how does that make sense in light of some of the examples in scripture where like Abraham, you know, went back and forth and continually pled with God or Moses stood before God and said, forgive them or wipe me out of the book. We're like, I'm sure there's an answer. So I guess just how do those two things fit together? Right. Well, I think we would read even those stories in light of Christ. You know, in him, we have the fullness of revelation and the, the cipher, if you will, through which we, uh interpret everything that has come before whether it's with abraham or the other uh, examples that, that you give uh but i think what is being spoken of here 
beyond the examples that you give is that you know, without humility, without purity of heart, uh, and without asceticism or an experiential knowledge of God that comes in and through humility, that one engages not in theology, but demonic theology, as we've talked about, that uh, so the prideful one meddles in the mysteries of God, sets himself up as a teacher, but all, one who dis disputes about uh, the God, whether it's the gospel or various points of the na nature of God, when he has no knowledge at all. In fact, the opposite, that he's being guided not by the spirit of truth, but the spirit of the, of the evil one. And it's the humble one who uh, is draw, drawn into the truth. You know, he who engages in truthful living, who first acknowledges the truth of his own poverty, his sin, and repents, comes then to be drawn into the very mysteries of God and his life, whereas the proud person has the incapacity for repentance and so remains in their in their darkness. And so I think this is why he's saying it's the proud person meddles, whereas the humble person is drawn into what he seeks the most, which is this experience of, of the love of God. Uh, Sean writes, Stephen Hawking, if we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For them, we would know the mind of God. That always uh, struck me as hubris. Uh, yeah, we would know the mind of God as as if um, you know the this idea of the triumph of human reason. You know, I think sometimes even the the, the uh, fantasy things that we uh, watch on television, like Star Trek, sort of promote this kind of vision that there is this kind of triumph of human reason that brings us to this capacity to, to rise above the, the, the things that we see in our present, uh, present day. And there's a little quote I came across today from Athanasius the Great that sort of touched upon this. Uh, just let me find it quickly here. That might aid us a little bit. This. In refusing to think of the good, men began to imagine and conceive things that do not exist. So, you know, the moment that we turn away from the good or cease to think of the good, to think of God, then we begin to create things in our own mind that do not even exist. That we are drawn not only into falsehood, but into an illusion. Uh, and ever further from the truth. And so, you know, while again, humility seems so diminishing, I think in the eyes of the world and certainly the, the path of Christ as a whole, that what it draws us into are the greatest of mysteries that can only be, be uh, revealed to us. That, you know, this is part of the, we've talked about before, the nature of faith, that it is a kind of knowing, uh, a dark, obscure knowing, a comprehending, uh, where 
draw God reveals himself to us as he is in himself. But uh, this is experienced to us, not in the way that we typically experience things through reason, intellect, through imagination, but we are drawn in this darkness of faith and God in his mercy uh, shines as it were a, a, a light to reveal uh, to the, the heart who he is to us. And the more that we cling to those limited faculties, the, the more we prevent ourselves from walking along that path of faith that draws us into greatest, greater intimacy. Again, this is why silence is the language of the kingdom as, as well. You know, because our words, no matter how beautifully they seem to capture the nature of God and the things of God, are always going to be frightfully limited. Where God, where silence allows God to speak that word that is equal to himself. And again, it's something, it's more that we are taken hold of by it. We behold it or we are held by it rather than uh, the way that we typically approach things in our study. You know, where we are dissecting, pulling apart. And so often I think we approach God in a similar way. Uh, a couple of comments here. Uh, Anthony writes, also in regard to not prying into mysteries, does this apply to the heirs of heretics? And does it apply to the Orthodox whose censure might have caused more harm than good? The way we use anathema, which is the effect of alienating peoples. Uh, yes, I think even in our, our talking about uh, the faith, you know, we hear fathers, you know, modern as well as ancient, telling us that, you know, discussing things with those who have no hold of the truth or desire for it is uh, of limited value, that we do better to pray uh, for them for the gift of faith than we do to try to argue that more is accomplished through love than through sermons. And, uh, and so we can lose sight of this, uh, even when uh, speaking to those who find themselves in error that our first approach often is to critique, to judge, and in doing so, we lose sight of the person. You know, a person is more than the sum total of their particular beliefs, mistaken or not. And in the same way that we are more than the sum total of our sin, created in the image and likeness of God, and yet our vision of ourselves and our vision of others often betrays a lack of understanding of that. Uh, Patrick writes in step 25.7, he says, the highest degree includes a constant desire to learn. However, in step 24.29, he says, if knowledge puffs up most people, simplicity and a lack of learning can perhaps in the same measure humble them. Is he saying that that path of knowledge is the first is first to learn to be simple, perhaps a lack of learning to bring about. Uh, I'm sorry, here I lost uh, somebody else put in a perhaps a lack of learning to bring about true knowledge via humility, and only then will we be capable of purifying the desire to learn. Right, because I think 
you know, learn learning for us is we often will commodify it, you know, as something as information. And we can approach the things of God in a similar way, or even the scriptures, you know, we'll, we'll quote it and use it or the teachings of the church in a similar way rather than than living it. And so you're right, you know, it is this path of humility that then brings us to this experiential knowledge of God, where we are transformed by that truth, where that allows us then to truly begin uh, to speak about it. And, uh, and so first of all, we would want to do as Christ says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. You know, this is what we are to learn first. And, uh, and often we fail to do so. Suzanne writes, I've been putting into practice lately, take, taking all my thoughts to God. It's really powerful and it's leading me to actually speak with him quietly and intimately about past sins. I, I sense that there is a deep pride that causes us to withdraw from his gaze and refuse to reflect upon our sins in his holy sight. Yet he has shown me that he is ardently ready and willing to discuss my sin with me and make me understand his providence. This, I think, is going to lead to humility in my soul. You know, for us, truth is a person. And we often fail to articulate that or live in accord with that. And uh, so to acknowledge the truth about ourselves uh, no matter how lowly it might be, uh, draws us into intimacy with he who is true. And so what is to be feared in acknowledging the poverty of our sin before Christ? Nothing. Uh, because even now our sin, perhaps the things that we hate most about ourselves, can be the very thing that draws us into this greater intimacy with the Lord, that we come to know his mercy. We come to know the healing balm of his grace, even in and through uh, that which draws us away from him. This is the nature of the depth of his love. And it's out of this that is born a true desire for God. When we see this love, then uh, an urgent longing comes over the human heart to pursue it, to learn it, uh, to heed his his exhortation there, learn from me for I'm meek and humble of heart. And it's only when we begin, you know, how John talks about, you know, how do you describe honey to one who's never tasted it? And, uh, and it, but it's true for us too. How do we come to understand the sweetness of this virtue if we've never tasted it? And, you know, when we, you know, turn it into an abstraction or an affront to human dignity, uh, then I think it sort of betrays our, our lack of having tasted in the way that John describes it, that makes us love it and desire it and yearn for it because we know it becomes the source of healing for us. So my friends, wow, your questions are tough. <laughs> uh, tough, but beautiful. And, uh, but that, that actually brings us to past 8.30. These groups fly by, uh, but uh, we'll pick up there next week uh, with this chapter. Again, I think 
again, with this one, we want to take our time with it. In some ways, I think we already go too, too quickly. But beautiful, wonderful comments, questions, as always, and uh, truly appreciate it. So uh, why don't we close, as always, with the our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you all. Have a wonderful night.